We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. I want to remind our listeners that this is a rapidly evolving field, and so anything we're talking about today may change by the time you listen to this podcast. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Sally Permar, who is a physician scientist focusing on the prevention and treatment of neonatal viral infections. She leads a research laboratory investigating immune protection against vertical transmission of neonatal viral pathogens, namely HIV and cytomegalovirus, also called CMV, using human cohorts and non-human primate models. Dr. Permar has made important contributions to the development of vaccines for prevention of vertical HIV transmission defining both innate and adaptive immune responses that are associated with protection against infant HIV acquisition. Moreover, Dr. Permar is leading the development of HIV vaccine strategies in preclinical, maternal, infant, non-human primate models and translation of this work for clinical vaccine trials in infants. Dr. Permar has also worked to understand the determinants of congenital and perinatal CMV transmission developing the first non-human primate model of congenital CMV infection and designing human cohort studies that have been used to define the immune correlates of protection necessary to guide vaccine development. Dr. Permar has a PhD in microbiology and immunology from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore, an MD from Harvard Medical School, and completed her clinical training in pediatric infectious diseases at Children's Hospital in Boston. She has received multiple prestigious investigator awards and was inducted into the American Society of Clinical Investigation and is a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology. She serves on the board of the National CMV Foundation. She is an institutional and national leader in physician scientist training, serving as the Associate Dean of Physician Scientist Development at Duke University Medical School, and was selected by the Association of Medical School Pediatric Department Chairs as the next director of the National Pediatric Scientist Development Program in 2019. Sally, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to utilizing your expertise to answer questions from our audience, as well as from my family and friends. Before we get started, is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience about yourself? I think you summed everything up very well, Ted. Thank you. My pleasure. It's a very impressive resume, and we're really looking forward to hear what you have to say about COVID-19 and specifically around some vaccine topics. So can you please tell us about the work that you do on a daily basis and particularly your work with vaccines for viruses? Sure. So as you talked about, I am a physician scientist, which means that I split my time between research and clinical duties. Um, I more lean towards the research side with about 90% of my time focused there. And um, I run a laboratory of about 20 individuals who are both trainees and staff members that are working in different areas of trying to understand 
how we can best define the immune responses that are needed to protect children against uh, viral pathogens. And that involves both work with human samples and human cohorts. And we work with a lot of collaborators around those studies. And also, uh, we mostly focus on non-human primate models for our animal studies. And of course, a number of uh, collaborators we work with there as well to, to get those studies done. But our real goal is to help with the development of vaccines by defining the targets the immune response targets that should be used to metric how well a vaccine is going to work so that when you have to do the the trials in humans that take um, a lot of time and a lot of cost, those are well-informed before they get to that point. Great. And in your biography, we mentioned that you work on developing vaccines to prevent the vertical transmission of neonatal viral pathogens. Can you tell us a bit about what that means, especially for those who don't work in healthcare? Sure. So vertical transmission refers to the type of transmission that involves a virus being passed from a mother to a baby. And there are different times in uh, the course of uh, development for an infant when a virus can be passed from a mother. Uh, So one is while the baby is still in utero or in the womb. The next is Uh, around the delivery time point when the baby is exposed to a lot of maternal fluids uh, through the birth process. And then um, the other mode is by postpartum transmission when we think of um, transmission of a virus through breastfeeding, like can occur for HIV and uh, CMV, or even just transmission from other contact with either the mother or other caregivers. And, And that would be the case of something like Um, herpes simplex virus. So all of those modes of um, passing a virus from a mother or a caregiver to a baby would be considered vertical transmission. Great. Thank you for that description. From what we've been seeing so far, COVID-19 seems to affect infants and children differently than it does kind of the middle-aged population and certainly differently than it does older adults. And early reports have suggested that children were not being infected at the same rates as adults. Is this still holding true? Yeah. So as you say, it's a moving target. But um, I think what has really been remarkable about this respiratory virus epidemic is that typically we think of respiratory viruses as um, one that is often more severe in the younger age groups, especially the infant and toddler age groups. We think about respiratory syncytial virus or influenza. There's actually a U-shaped curve in um, the severity of illness across the age spectrum, where you see high severity of illness in neonates, infants, toddlers, then less so as uh, children age. And then you start to see a rise again in disease severity at the older age groups working up towards elderly. And that's not the shape of the disease severity curve across the age groups with this virus. We see that, again, like you said, the disease severity seems to mostly be skewed towards adults and elderly adults. Of course, comorbidities and other uh, diseases have also been identified as as a uh, risk factor for severe disease. So, Sally, for this next question, I'm not sure that we know the answer to it yet, but... 
you're an expert and that's why we're, we have you on the show so we can probe these questions. Um, are there, are the differences in rates of infection in infants and children compared with adults related to how the virus attaches in their bodies, differences in their immune system, or are there other factors going on related to fewer chronic conditions or what's the thinking around this? Yeah. So like you say, they're really at the hypothesis stage at this point as to why we're seeing less severe cases being reported in children. Though again, we're, you know, very much closely watching the US epidemic here to see what happens there. But yeah, so there's a couple hypotheses that um, that I and others have, have put out there. So one would be that just as you say, maybe the um, there's something about the host, something about the um, the cells that the virus has to first enter into and replicate in that are different in children compared to adults. We know that there's a number of host proteins that are needed to sustain the virus replication, which starts with attachment to the cell and entry into the cell using the the virus receptor. And perhaps um, there is lower expression of um, those proteins that are needed for the virus to enter a cell and even for the virus to maintain its replication. So that's, that's one idea and one that um, can really only be looked at by looking at cells from the lung tissue itself, which, you know, are um, a challenge to get in human children often, but, uh, but animal models may play a role there. Another idea is that we know that infants have a very different immune landscape from that of adults and even elderly adults. So uh, when a uh, fetus is inside a mother, it has to be in a tolerant state because um, a fetus is only 50% genetically matched to the mother. And we know that any non-self protein can generate an immune response. So that fetus has to prevent itself, the immune system of the fetus has to dampen any response against maternal proteins that the fetus does not inherit. And then as soon as the baby is born, all of a sudden, the baby is being just bombarded with potential pathogens, bacterial pathogens, viral pathogens, and has to make a a rapid switch to start to be able to respond to those pathogens. But it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. So uh, slowly, the infant immune system continues to develop even over the first few years of life. And so there's a very different type of response to different types of pathogens that ensues because of that massive change in the immune system and the ongoing development when a baby is born. So that's potentially an underlying immune factor that makes the immune response of an infant very different than that of an adult or an elderly adult. And in fact, we know that infants can respond very well to some types of vaccines or protein antigens, such as we know we give uh, babies a hepatitis B vaccine, and that can generate lifelong immunity even. So potentially, the babies have an immune system that is either better able to contain the virus, or maybe they're not making that overabundant immune response that may lead to some of the lung pathology that we're seeing in adults and elderly. So that's one hypothesis. Um, I'll just put out the third hypothesis, which has to do with the immune systems as well. Um, There's been this thought that maybe children are more exposed to related viruses, like some of the um, circulating coronaviruses that at this point just cause colds in human population. 
because they, they were new coronaviruses that jumped into the human population hundreds of years ago, and we've evolved with them. You know, maybe children see more of those viruses and then have some cross-protective immunity. That might be a, a possibility. And some animal studies may suggest that um, some parts of the immune system can uh, create some cross-protective immunity. But I think it, it really remains to be seen um, if any of those hypotheses are going to play out as we do these investigations. Wow, that's really interesting. So I, I'm hearing really three ideas around why infants and children may be reacting differently. One is that the cells, particularly in their lung tissue, may actually just be different in terms of the proteins for the virus to be able to attach to. They have different immune systems. We know that, and that may be playing a role in terms of how they're responding. And because they're getting exposed to other coronaviruses like the common cold, there may be some cross-protection and they may be partially immune to this current COVID-19. Is that a pretty accurate summary? Yeah. Those are at least three of the potential hypotheses. Yes, I'm sure there are a lot a lot of other thoughts around that as well. Curious to hear how your work developing vaccines against neonatal viral pathogens such as HIV and CMV relate to the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. Yeah. So I think, you know, all of us that were in this field uh, before January, around January, started thinking about how the work that we do might contribute to being able to, you know, contain or end this pandemic. And, you know, where, where I thought some of the most important work may be is asking just those questions we were just talking about. You know, how is it that we could make an adult or elderly person respond to the virus in a way that a child does and make the disease in adults and elderly more childlike? Because then we'd have probably less people in the hospital, less people needing respirators, less people dying of the disease. So, so I thought it, it is really important to understand the pathogenesis or the way the virus interacts with the human host of a child compared to an adult or elderly individual. And so some of those studies are best done in animal models and in working in the primate models. We first started getting together with our colleagues who are um, at primate centers throughout the U.S., these primate research centers that are very vital to um, a lot of the uh, disease work that um, the NIH and other groups fund, and started looking at you know what was known about coronaviruses and these primate models. And in fact, some work had been done with the first SARS virus in, in non-human primate models that we could follow. But quickly knew it would, it would um, require multiple different types of expertise um, all getting together because, again, this was a new pathogen where, you know, these teams were not already set up before around January. Um, so that was one side where um, we started working quickly on whether we could model a pediatric infection versus an adult or elderly infection in non-human primates, but also just uh, ramping up the capability of collecting samples from patients in our area who develop the disease as well. Because of course, correlating the features that we see in animal models in humans is a very important work as well. And even though um, we're shutting down most operations, research operations at Duke, there has been ramp up around being able to do these clinical operations and even basic science studies around uh, the COVID-19 work. Yes, there's a real urgency to have some of that work done. Um, so 
Your um, area of, of expertise and, and research has, has been around vertical transmission, trying to prevent um, disease processes from going from mother to fetus or mother to infant. Um, what's unique about developing vaccines for pregnant mothers and trying to prevent vertical transmission of infections? So again, you know, a pregnant immune landscape is very different from that of a non-pregnant immune landscape. And because because of what I talked about, that the mother's immune system has to adapt to not reject the fetus, and the fetus is only 50% genetically matched to the mother. So there's a number of immune changes that happen that um, really uh, frame the way that the immune response may respond to a vaccine during pregnancy. So, you know, I think um, a lot of work has gone into whether pregnant women are seeing more severe disease than that of non-pregnant women. So far, most of it seems that this is not uh, the case we were seeing in, in the flu epidemic in uh, 2009, the uh, H5N1, that more severe disease was being seen in pregnant women. So we don't see you know, a lot of pregnant women being um, hospitalized for disease um, with this pandemic. But the jury's still out on whether it um, can lead to preterm birth or whether um, it causes some, you know, birth, subtle birth defects that we're not picking up yet. So the pregnant immune system is definitely different from that of a non-pregnant immune system. Um, but whether it's going to be important to um, work quickly to protect pregnant women from this virus compared to um, other high-risk populations still sort of should be looked at as this pandemic goes on. Right. Now, a significant part of your research is focused around vaccines for HIV. Can you tell us a bit about what makes it so difficult to develop a vaccine against HIV? Yeah, sure. So HIV is one of the greatest vaccine challenges we've faced. Um, and a lot of the reason is that HIV is a virus that can mutate exceedingly quickly after it infects a host. And, you know, so much so that if you check uh, one person's HIV that lives in their body and compare it genetically to another individual, it's like a fingerprint. You can identify an individual really by their HIV virus sequences. So the virus can mutate quickly away from any immune response. And then also the virus has, uh, we've learned through a lot of really high quality science, is um, the, the virus has really hidden its vulnerable sites very well from the immune system by using sugar molecules and structural um, components of its virus envelope to uh, hide and keep the ability of antibodies, which are our main fighter against uh, viruses entering cells. It, it hides those places that um, the virus can be neutralized by an antibody. But actually, that has spurred the field on to really um, take on new technologies to make vaccines and define the necessary immune responses. And all of those, I think, you know, HIV was really a place where we um, used and developed and um, pushed the technology around vaccine development. And all of that now can be applied right back to development of a coronavirus vaccine. And in fact, many of those individuals who jumped uh, quickly into coronavirus vaccine development come from the HIV vaccine field. Interesting. I, I think you're actually going down the path that I wanted to go down um, in terms of, of this sequence of questions relating HIV to influenza to COVID-19. 
So my next question is, how does the challenge that HIV poses relate to the challenge of predicting which strains of influenza to include in the vaccine each year? Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Yeah, so influenza is another great vaccine challenge (laughs) where... um, you know, we have uh, a vaccine, but it's not completely protective. It's not a universal vaccine, right? Because every year we have to change the flu vaccine to try to match the circulating viruses. And we know even when there's a good match, it can um, it, it doesn't protect every vaccinated individual, though uh, it does protect seem to protect against severe disease, even um, when you don't have a, a good match. So that excellent hallmark of the influenza vaccine, that it may not prevent you from getting the flu, but it'll prevent you from landing in the hospital. So w- with a coronavirus vaccine, we're going to have you know, somewhat of a similar challenge in that we know that there's the propensity for additional coronaviruses to get into the human population. And so ideally, a universal vaccine could be developed. However, that that may be more challenging than developing a vaccine specifically for this SARS-CoV-2 virus. And that's because of some features of the coronavirus where there are pretty uh, well-known regions of the protein in the coronavirus envelope called the spike protein, which gives it its coronavirus name, uh, meaning crown. Um, that spike protein that lives on the outside of the virus is the target of antibodies from our immune system. And those antibodies, if they uh, meet up with the tip of the uh, spike protein, they can prevent that virus from infecting the next cell. However, coronavirus is an RNA virus, meaning that it's more easy to mutate itself. And, and that's in comparison to a DNA virus. DNA viruses often use our own host proteins to replicate themselves because, uh, you know, we um, produce all of our proteins from DNA. But an RNA virus often brings its own machinery to replicate itself. And it's never as good as the human cell uh, machinery, because we put a lot of effort, our cells put a lot of effort into preventing mutations. But a virus, not so much, because the virus is actually helped by having the ability to mutate. So we know that the um, coronaviruses do have the ability to mutate, and especially that um, region of the spike protein that is um, vulnerable to neutralizing antibodies. So I think that um, there's good hope that we will be able to develop a spike protein vaccine for this coronavirus, but it may not work against the next coronavirus and the next coronavirus or the previous coronaviruses. And um, that will take more work and more in-depth understanding of the immune responses that could be cross-protective across various coronaviruses. So then when we talk, uh, I I hear the concern about future coronaviruses um, emerging, 
But speaking specifically about COVID-19, can you talk with us about the potential concerns of this mutating or developing other strains or even the idea that could it become a seasonal virus like influenza is where it, it changes rapidly enough that we see it again every single year? Yeah. So I think that with as widespread as this coronavirus has become, that there is more chance for it to become a virus that we may see seasonally, or at least we see it, you know, uh, replicating throughout the, the human population for a while. So I think there is that chance. However, it's a bit different from flu in that flu can reassort easily. That's the name we give to uh, flu actually comes with eight different RNA strands that when two of those flus infect the same cell, they can just pick and choose um, from those genomes to take with them to the next cell. And that allows for the flu to easily become a new virus, you know, while circulating with other flu viruses. Um, Coronavirus does not have that same feature. And so we may not be chasing it as frequently as we have to do for um, flu, where every year we have to make a new flu vaccine. I think with coronavirus, we're going to look more to see as we develop a vaccine and deploy it in the human population, does the virus, can the virus mutate itself away from being effectively uh, contained by the immune responses that the vaccine will generate? And that is something that we will need to watch. Um, But I I think the good news about coronaviruses is, you know, um, viruses in general don't really gain much from killing their hosts. They would like to be able to be, you know, symbiotic with their hosts. And because that's how they get to spread more easily. If you're, you know, feel sick and and, in a hospital, you're less likely to spread than if you are not so sick. Um, And that's what's happened with the coronaviruses that um, cause common colds, um, uh, you know, every year in our population now. So, I think the propensity will be for the virus to uh, evolve more into a virus that causes less severe disease. So over time, um, there will probably be some uh, movement of the virus to actually, you know, cause more like a common cold than the very severe lung disease we're seeing now. Interesting. I actually saw a report uh, from Wuhan that there was some theory that the virus had mutated there already into a a more severe form and a less severe form. And it appeared that the more severe form kind of burned itself out in late January. And and there was some question about whether that was related to, to, you know, the, the climate changing around that time or whether it was some other factor or whether it had even mutated in the first place. Do you know anything about, about that report? Yeah, um, I I think a lot of those uh, reports of, you know, more than one strain um, have initially been very cloudy because of, you know, even just sequencing errors and, you know, what exactly constitutes a new strain also needing to be defined very well. So I think whether evolution happens um, in disparate ways so that, you know, various subpopulations of the virus emerge is going to be something that we have to keep studying. Okay, great. We're in the initial phases of vaccine development for adults against COVID-19. And and what we're hearing is probably 12 to 18 months before these are really 
commercially available and, and widespread. When can we expect that vaccines might become available for children or even infants? So that's something that I'm definitely uh, working on as well, bringing bringing my expertise to the table. So uh, yes, certainly the um, initial virus, or sorry, initial vaccine testing will take place in adults. Um, and, you know, I can um, imagine that the first uh, targets of an approved vaccine will be those with high risk of getting severe disease, which will include elderly individuals and those with um, other diseases and, you know, maybe immune suppression um, from things like cancer treatment. But at the same time, there have been reports of um, infants who have become infected on the first day of life, most likely from the birth process with an, an infected mother. And, you know, some that um, had hosp prolonged hospital stays because of that. So there is some idea that, you know, we will need to protect infants and even from th the first day of life from this disease. And uh, we also know that children are the best subjects for getting vaccines uh, in general. So the highest coverage of vaccines occurs in those that are given in the early years of life that show up on the WHO, you know, under five uh, vaccine schedule, that show up in your pediatrician's vaccine schedule. And children are generally, you know, make it to all their well child care checks to receive those vaccines. Um, adults are terrible at getting, you know, frequent vaccines and high coverage of vaccines, having to do with uh, that it's not as routine and, and the um, well child visit or well check visits are not as routine. Even adolescents, when you think about the human papillomavirus vaccine or the HPV vaccine is one of the safest, most effective vaccines we've ever had, and it's supposed to be given to adolescents, and we're still at only about a 40% uptake. So the best place to get high coverage in a vaccine is going to be in a pediatric schedule, and we have disease um, being seen in, um, in the very early months of life. And so I think there, there will be a need to uh, de-escalate uh, the age of the vaccine to the infant population. And we're already discussing that with various vaccine manufacturers and even planning potential non-human primate studies with vaccine candidates, clinical candidates, so that we can quickly justify the efficacy and, and safety and immunogenicity of those vaccines in an infant population. Great. And I'd actually like to take a little bit even more of a dive into this topic and, and talk about infants. And I guess, since we're talking kind of this under five years of age group is when children get most of their vaccines. Can you tell us what is unique about their immune system in this age group that affects the approach to developing vaccines for them? So um, as we started talking about that infants have a developing immune system that's going from a tolerant state in the womb to a uh, reactive state, being able to respond to pathogens quickly once they're a baby in the outside world. Um, and so there are certain types of response that infants are very good at making, but there are certain types of responses that infants are less good compared to adults at making. One of those types of responses that they're very good at making is responses to proteins that uh, you know can be included in vaccines. And again, proteins are what is most uh, often the target of a um, virus vaccine because it's those proteins in the surface of the virus that are needed to enter a cell. And if you can have an antibody block that protein from binding to the next cell, you've neutralized the virus. 
And so infants are actually very good at making that type of response, antibody responses against a protein. And that would be um, like the hepatitis B vaccine that's given on often on the first day of life and uh, a couple of booster shots um, within the first year of life. And then you have lifelong immunity in most cases. So that's an example of infants being able to make a great immune response. And because actually when it's been compared to older individuals, infants actually make a higher magnitude response. So uh, there may be advantages actually uh, for the length of time that you'll be protected by immunizing early in life. However, there's other types of responses that infants are less good at. Um, So one is the uh, cellular response. So your immune cells, in addition to making antibodies, T cells are also needed to be the killer cells. They kill virus-infected cells, and they actually are also uh, part of um, putting out a lot of uh, what we call cytokines or a lot of signals to the immune system to uh, rev up and start responding to a pathogen. And the, the T cells in a human infant are, or any kind of infant are often slower in responding or have uh, less magnitude in their response. And again, this is back to the immunology of being a fetus, not wanting to reject your mother um, as, as a fetus. And um, so T cell dependent responses are often um, slower or less high magnitude in infants compared to adults. And this plays out when there are certain types of immune responses needed that require that T-cell response. And an example would be vaccines for bacterial pathogens like um, pneumococcus or Haemophilus influenzae. And um, those, to stop the bacteria and to kill off the bacteria in a human body, you need a response against the carbohydrate or the sugar antigens on the surface of the bacteria. And that really requires those T cells being involved. And so infants are not as good at making that response. And and yet um, those were prime pathogens of young children. And so a huge innovation came on when um, vaccine developers realized they could put that um, carbohydrate antigen together with a protein antigen. And all of a sudden the infant's immune response could see it and respond better. And we now have those vaccines able to be given to young children. Great. Um, Sally, you, you mentioned to me when we before we started recording this interview that you're on service this week at Duke, which means you're working in the hospital, and I would guess perhaps with a, a team of residents or fellows. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of what you're seeing in the hospital related to COVID-19? Yeah. So I think, um, like much of this uh, podcast is focused on, Uh, we are today glad to be pediatricians who are not being overwhelmed with severe disease uh, right now. So I'm um, on the Pediatric Infectious Disease Service, and we are seeing many patients, as we typically do, who have a complicated infection and are in the hospital. Often these are uh, patients that have undergone surgery or are being treated for cancer diagnosis or another genetic condition who then have an infection on top of that. Or they're the routine things like um, staph infections or um, even still seeing some influenza infections. So um, we are mostly seeing the routine things. Um, But what is different is 
we first we we typically um, are the ones who are seeing patients that have these communicable diseases that are on contact precautions, and instead of putting on a mask in every room and immediately throwing it away after you see the patient to not help to help not spread um, any uh, infections across the hospital, we're now being asked to wear one mask per day and um, to see that for all our patients. I think that's just reflective of the supply chain of PPE that has become problematic in this era. And then the other thing is we are constantly working as a team to put together new infection control practices and new protocols for when we do see um, a child in the hospital with coronavirus. Because again, the, you know, therapeutics that may or may not be effective. The data on that is coming in daily. And we know that we will likely see these um, severe infections as other um, hospitals across the nation are seeing. We're a little bit behind the curve here in North Carolina, which has been good because we can watch those that are going ahead of us and take in information from from those. And um, so we are constantly putting together um, protocols on which treatments we will use in the face of a pediatric infection that lands in the hospital and supporting our adult colleagues who are seeing more of these um, adult severe diseases. Sally, I think what you're telling us you're seeing in the hospital these days just reinforces the idea of the need for social distancing and trying to flatten the curve. Because if the hospital systems get overwhelmed with COVID-19 infections, it just gets that much more difficult to take care of all of the routine stuff that continues to happen in our population. Things like people needing surgery and getting infections following that, or children with cancer who are on chemotherapy and getting infections related to that, and all the other infections that just happen year round. And if we overwhelm the system, we can't provide the good care to those patients who need it for all of these other issues. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, babies are born every day. Babies are born preterm every day. And um, yeah, I've walked through the neonatal intensive care unit this week and thought, what if there was, you know, a coronavirus uh, outbreak here in this unit? And it's just overwhelming to think about. Um, and so, yes, I uh, agree that I've been struck with how much just regular disease we have to take care of, even in this unprecedented time of our hospital changing daily to be able to best serve the coronavirus pandemic. And, um, but those, you know, routine uh, hospital needs don't change. So uh, I I agree. Social distancing is, is what we're looking at for the near future. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Is there, before we wrap up this interview, is there anything else that you wanted to let our audience know that I haven't asked you? Yeah, I think just um, what I always say when I get that last question from um, uh, people like you is I say, you know, we really need to support the development of new uh, therapeutics and new uh, vaccine approaches that are going to end this pandemic in populations that are often left out of mainstream research, which include pregnant women and children, even elderly. You know, often we think that those populations may have more risks associated with the research to um, work to develop a uh, treatment or a, or a vaccine. But with that being the predominating thought, you're actually robbing those uh, individuals of the possibility of benefit. And so um, we need to you know, support and, and carefully think about after the initial safety testing is done in healthy adults 
to uh, quickly move these new therapeutics and vaccines into populations like pregnant women and pediatric patients. That's a great message to end on. Sally, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to join us on this podcast and to help educate our audience and the general public and for sharing your expertise. It's been uh, really great. And we thank you very much. Thank you for uh, putting out this podcast. I think it's really important. Thanks, Sally. Have a great day and stay safe. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.